So last week, we started in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Well, actually, I think it was verse 15. Yep, we started verse 15, and my goal last week was to get all the way from 15 to 35. That didn't exactly happen. Um, We went through it quickly. We spent the majority of our time in the first part, which is on what do you do if someone sins against you and refuses to repent? What happens? And then we breezed quickly through the second part, how often or how many times should we forgive someone who sins against us and repents? And I said last week we were going to come back and look at that portion in greater detail. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Ironically, I'm not sure I'm going to get through the whole passage this morning. We're going to spend 90% of our time in the first two verses. And then uh, we'll see how long we've got for the rest of it. But I want to start with some questions, and maybe you can answer these in your own mind. What is forgiveness? What is it? That's important. If we're going to look at forgiveness, and Jesus is going to command us to forgive, and Peter's going to wonder, well, how often or how many times do we need to forgive someone? We need to understand what is forgiveness. And I'm going to suggest to you that the more I studied this, the more I became convinced we don't have very good definitions of forgiveness. And that's part of our struggle. So I want to look this week at the biblical definitions of forgiveness and allow it to change and inform what we think so that we conform to what the Word of God says. Because that's important to being a Christian. What is forgiveness? Let me ask another question. What sins should be forgiven? Is there a scale? Well, these are mildly annoying Wrong, not that big a deal. You took my donut, how dare you? Okay, there's, there's that end, right? The taking donut sort of sin. And on, on this, this end, there's intense bodily harm. A huge crime or a huge betrayal against someone. And I think a lot of us would say that somewhere in here is forgiveness. These things, no big deal. We can forgive them. These things are too great to be forgiven. If we think that way, it is a clear indication we do not understand biblical biblical forgiveness. Because in biblical forgiveness, there is no scale. And all sins can be forgiven. Now that's hard. That's hard when you're talking to somebody who's been on this end and they are the one that was sinned against and they've been abused and hurt over and over and over again. And then they hear a Christian say, well, you just need to forgive. And in their heart, they're dying. Because we're asking them at times to forgive someone who is still hurting them. And what they're hearing is, you're saying that that hurt is okay, and I should act like it never existed, and I should pretend that it's not happening. That is not biblical forgiveness at all. That's a clear indication we don't understand biblical forgiveness. Let me ask you another question, and I think I know the answer. I think I know what most people would say to this. Should we forgive everyone? Hmm. I mean, the Christian answer, right? We want to give the Christian answer, and it seems like the Christian answer is yes. We should forgive everyone. But is that truly the biblical answer? Let me ask you another question. Does forgiving someone mean that there are never consequences for what they did? 
is forgiving someone, letting go of all consequences ever for what they did. Do you see why forgiveness is such a hard subject? Because it touches on all these things and so many more. And it's easy from a distance to talk about, "Mm, yes, as a Christian, I should forgive. But when you're right there in the thick of it, of somebody hurting you and harming you, or you're counseling someone who's being hurt, it's a lot more difficult to hold on to these definitions. So we need to make sure in the thick of it, we've got a biblical definition of forgiveness. So that's what we're going to look at today. What is forgiveness? And as we come to this passage, you're going to see Christ call us to an extreme forgiveness. A forgiveness that is going to be uncomfortable, absolutely, but needs to be defined according to Scripture. Now, I want to put this in the context of the chapter. So the whole rest of chapter 18, all of chapter 18 is kind of one setting. Jesus is teaching his disciples. And he has a long time in verses 1 through 20 of teaching Um, And then he gets into this back and forth with Peter, which is what we're going to look at today. And the chapter starts with this question by one of the disciples. We don't know who. One of the disciples. But it says, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's a bad question. Jesus points out really quick, man, you are missing the point. The whole point of the kingdom is not which one of us is greater But how do we serve and love one another? So Jesus brings a child and he says, look, you want to be important? And he brings to them what they considered the least in their society. The least important were the children. This is not about purity and innocence. This is about least in importance. And he says, you want to be great in importance? Here's where you focus. Focus on being the least in importance. And he says, welcome other little children. And he's using that phrase, little children, to refer to believers, Christians. And throughout the passage, he says how little children, how Christians should treat one another. Little children, Christians love one another and welcome each other, not on the basis of importance or status, but on the basis of Jesus Christ. In verses 6 through 9, he says, sin is serious in the church. Do not cause another believer to stumble, to fall into sin, to doubt their faith. We need to look at our own hearts too and say, what am I doing that is sin? And I need to work on that in my own life. Sin in the church is serious. In verses 10 through 14, he says, God cares for those who wander. He goes after those who are struggling. So he paints this picture that is so beautiful of a church that loves and cares for one another. People who who lay down their importance to serve one another. People who aren't trying to be great, but are trying to show love, who are taking seriously that sin destroys unity in the church, and something needs to be done about it. So then there are two important questions that come up. One is asked outright, but the first one is kind of inferred. How do we deal with someone in the church who is sinning? How do you deal with, if sin is serious in the church, what do you do when someone in the church is sinning, especially in such a way that affects the whole church? And that's what verses 15 through 17 are all about. And Jesus lays out a pattern, a procedure. If someone sins against you, go and talk to them. Go say, hey man, what you did was wrong. And again, this is not, I just didn't like it. This is according to scripture, it's a sin. That's last week's sermon. I'll let you listen to that. I'm not going to bring it all in. I'm going to try not to bring it all in. Lovingly confront them. But then there's this if. If they won't listen to you is what Matthew says. Luke says that they won't repent. So if they won't repent, 
They won't say, you know what, what I did was wrong, it was sinful, I'm sorry. If they won't do that, now you have to go to the next level. You bring a couple people with you. You sit down and you say, hey, what you did was wrong. The Bible says it's wrong. It's very clear. No, no, I'm right. If the person says, I won't listen to you, I won't repent, then you go to the next level. Take it to the church. They bring them up in front of the church. And the whole church says, look, you are in sin. This is wrong. And if the person still refuses to repent, then there's this question, what happens? And it's interesting because if we take these two passages together, let's bring in the forgiveness question, should that person be forgiven? And the text of Matthew chapter or chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, the answer is actually no. They should not be forgiven, they should be disciplined. If someone is unwilling to repent of their sin, it is not a time for forgiveness. It is a time for discipline. This is not treating them poorly. It's not hating them or being bitter or angry. It is understanding you might not be a believer in Jesus Christ because that's how you're acting. And until you're willing to come back and repent of your sin, there cannot be a restoration of the relationship and the fellowship. Our fellowship is based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the person who lives in unrepentant sin, refuses to repent, is denying who Jesus even is and what he's done. There can't be just a glossing over that, oh, no big deal, I still love you, let's go have a potluck together. There's a problem in the relationship. Now, the goal of that whole passage that leads up to this discipline, there's always this if. So if they do repent, then you need to forgive them and restore the relationship. That's the goal. The goal is repentance, forgiveness, restoration. But that's not what Jesus traces in that passage. He traces the other side of that equation. So now we have to look at the second question, which is what Peter asks. Wait a minute. Jesus, if I'm understanding this passage correctly... And a brother or sister sins against me. I'm to go to them. And if they repent, I need to forgive them. Okay. What if they do it again? I should probably go to them, confront them. And if they repent, I should probably forgive them again. Okay, but what if it happens again and again and again and again? And every time they meaningfully, willingly repent. And yet they keep on doing it. And this is the question that we start with. This difficult question of Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through the end of the chapter. The chapter starts with who is the greatest. And now it continues with another question that is a bit off. Peter asks Jesus in verse 21, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Now, why is Peter asking this? The traditional wisdom, as far as we understand, traditional Jewish teaching of the day, as I said last week, is that the rabbis taught to forgive three times. After the third time, if they keep on sinning against you, you are well within your right to write them out of your life, or well within your right to write them out of your life forever. It's kind of a three strikes and you're out. That's what the rabbis taught. It's not what Jesus is teaching. So understand, Peter thinks he's trying to be generous. Okay, man, Jesus is really talking about extreme forgiveness. I'm going to be extreme. Jesus, I'm going to forgive somebody seven times. How's that? And Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, not good enough. 
And Jesus responds by saying, not seven times, but some translations say 77 times. Other translations say seven times 70 or 490. Trying to work out the math is really missing the point. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying, take your list of three and add to it. Take your list of seven and add to it and make it 49 or 490 or whatever. You're not more spiritual if you believe he's saying 490 here. Okay, It's not the way it works. What he is saying is throw out your list altogether. There is no limit to the number of times we are to forgive someone who truly repents of their sin against us. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage. We are to continually forgive someone who is willing to repent and restore the relationship. Now, let's look exactly at what Peter is asking. Because if we get this wrong, we're going to get wrong the whole definition of repentance. First of all, he is asking, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? That is a phrase used in scripture, used among the believers in the early church to talk about other Christians. This is not a passage about somebody out there in the world who is not a believer and whether or not we should forgive them. There are things that apply to it, but understand that's not what this passage is about. This is about a fellow Christian, a believer and follower of Jesus Christ who sins against you. That's what this is about. So we need to make sure we use this to answer the right questions. And here's why that's important. Non-Christians, and please Christians, we need to come to understand this. People who are not Christians have a completely different starting point than us. We believe in a God who exists. We believe in a God who gave us his word, and this word is our ultimate standard. We believe in a God who sent his son because we are sinful rebels and destined for hell, and he sent his son to die for us on the cross, and that's the only way of salvation. We believe in a God who then gathers those people saved by Jesus Christ into this thing called the church so that our relationship and our actions in the church demonstrate and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our starting point. At least it should be. And unfortunately, so many of those things I just listed off, Christians have been doing away with over the ages. Oh, the word of God, it's not really that important. God doesn't really exist. doesn't matter what you believe in. You can believe in any God. No. Our starting point is there is a God. And he's given us his word. So when we come to talk about forgiveness and reconciliation and repentance, we need to understand when we're dealing with a non-Christian, it doesn't make them horrible, evil, wrong, but it's a completely different starting point. You're talking different language. We've got to come to understand that. The other thing is that non-Christians have a different goal. Our goal in the church is for the church to bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. Our goal in the church is not for you or for me to be happy. That's not the goal of this. I'm sorry if you come and you have a rough Sunday and you don't like the songs and the slides weren't quite accurate or the singers, especially that lead singer, is a little pitchy. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you come and the sermon puts you to sleep. Actually, maybe that's what you wanted. It happens. I get it. My sermons put me to sleep sometimes. I'm sorry if you go home just like, yeah, I don't know. I didn't really get anything out of that. But that's not the point of why we gather. The point of why we gather is the glory of God. Not about us, all about him. That's completely different than anybody else out there in the world. It has to be. 
So understand that if you're going to take this and try to apply it to a secular person, a person who's not a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a completely different starting point and a completely different goal. So be careful how you apply this. There's some wisdom you can take and apply, but overall it is a very different situation. Now, is Peter asking about forgiving other believers no matter what? Is the situation here that somebody, hypothetically in Peter's mind, somebody has sinned against him and he's simply asking, Jesus, do I just need to forgive that person? And the answer to that question is no. Peter is asking, if someone sins against me and repents, and you say, Dave, that's not in the text. It is. Because you have to go back to verses 15 to 17. Jesus has just told his disciples what to do if somebody doesn't repent. And the answer was, you take it another step further in the discipline process, possibly to the extreme extent of saying you are no longer a member of the church, you should not be taking communion, we don't even think you're a believer anymore. Doesn't mean shunning them, doesn't necessarily mean kicking them out of the church, but it does mean that we now have to treat them as if they're not saved. And we cannot have the same fellowship with them that we had before. Matthew 18, 13 to 20 talks about what to do if a Christian refuses to repent. This passage is what we do if they do repent. Luke helps in this aspect in verses 3 through 4. He says, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And, and here it is, if they repent, forgive them. If they repent, even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Luke's helpful because he kind of abbreviates this whole passage in, that, in those two verses. But back to Peter's question. Peter is asking, okay, so someone sins and it's assumed that they have repented. And now he's asking, okay, but is that really good enough? I mean, sure, the first time, hey, I'm sorry, what I did was wrong. I forgive you. That makes sense. Second time, hey, I'm sorry, what I did, that was wrong. Yeah, okay, I forgive you. Third time, hey, I'm sorry, I I did it. Yeah, no, I'm done. Like, that's how we feel. We want to treat this like, no, no, you've used up the forgiveness. And that's what Peter is asking. At what point is the forgiveness used up? And Jesus' answer is never, never is forgiveness used up or exhausted. We must keep on forgiving. Now, some of you might say, wait a minute, Pastor. I really believe that we should forgive no matter what. Doesn't the Bible teach that we should just forgive everybody? And, And I bet, I'm not going to, but I bet if I ask for a show of hands... Some of you put your hand up. Like, yeah, I really believe that's what Scripture teaches. And I got to say, honestly, a couple weeks ago before I came to this passage, I would have raised my hand. I, we're to forgive everybody. Sure, the forgiveness might look a little different if they're repentant or not, but, but still, we should forgive everybody. And here's where we need to answer the question, what is forgiveness? And the Bible answers this question first and foremost by teaching us to forgive as God has forgiven us. Ephesians 4.32 is one of many passages I could go to that references this very idea. Forgive as God has forgiven us. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Do you know the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts, trespasses, whatever, as we also forgive those who have trespassed against us. 
right? And Jesus even then ties it together for how can we be forgiven of God if we won't forgive others? So it comes up again, this link between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others. So let's look at how God forgives us. Now, if you have a Bible, I want you to open up to Romans chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the chair in front of you somewhere. Romans chapter 5. I'm going to put it up on the screen, but I want you to see this in your own Bible or our Bible, but I want you to see it for yourself because I want to look at how God forgives us, okay? Because that's how we are to forgive others. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this concept of God forgiving us through Jesus Christ and then reconciling with us, restoring the relationship, it starts with this understanding we were sinners. While we were powerless, while we were sinners, in other places it talks about us being enemies of God under his wrath. This is a real thing. You know, sometimes I think trying to be well-meaning and polite, somebody comes to us and says, oh, I'm so sorry, and we say, oh, it's nothing. Sin is never nothing. And saying it's nothing or saying it doesn't exist is not forgiveness. It's ignorance. Forgiveness says that was sin, but I release you from that. I will not hold that against you. I forgive you. God doesn't say to us, your sin is nothing. If God was to say that sin is nothing, then putting his son on the cross is the most horrific, cruel thing anybody has ever done. Jesus didn't go to the cross because sin is nothing. He went to the cross because sin is a huge deal that separates us from God. That's why he went to the cross. God deals with our sin through Jesus Christ dying in our place. A penalty had to be paid. God didn't just choose to overlook and ignore our sin. He says, I will put your sin on my son Jesus and I will put him to death in your place. That's what it takes to be forgiven by God. God forgives us through Jesus Christ. And the ultimate goal of the forgiveness is a restoration. If we look at verses 9 and 10 of Romans 5, since we have now been justified, that means the penalty has been paid, that's part of forgiveness, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Do you see the goal there? The goal of God's forgiveness is reconciliation. A restoration of the relationship between us who sinned and became God's enemies and the holy righteous God who created us. Sin has to be dealt with so the relationship can be restored. And there is no concept in scripture of God forgiving someone and the relationship not being restored. Forgiveness involves the restoration of the relationship. Without the restoration of the relationship, we're not talking about biblical forgiveness. That's important. There is no concept in Scripture of God forgiving someone, but not restoring them to a right relationship. 
So forgiveness involves appropriately dealing with sin so that the relationship can be restored. This means that forgiveness cannot be one-sided. Let me say that again. This means that forgiveness cannot be one-sided. We talk sometimes about forgiving somebody in our heart. What we mean by that is we can't or we won't go to them. There won't be repentance. What we mean is that we're going to let go of anger and bitterness. That's good and that's extremely biblical and absolutely necessary. That's not forgiveness, though. That's love. And we'll talk more about that in a second. Let's deal with another objection. Because when I asked, should we forgive everybody, I'm sure some of us wanted to say yes. So let's ask the question, does God forgive everybody? Hmm. I read a book this week. I'm going to mention the title later. It's further down in my notes. But I highly recommend it. It's on forgiveness. Um, I think it's called Unpacking Forgiveness by Chris Bronze. I remembered. Anyway. I read the whole thing. It was so good. It's written by a pastor. It was really good. But he referenced another book I'd never heard of, but I guess it's like the most important work on Christian forgiveness. And in the, the, uh, the page where they dedicate the book to somebody, the dedication page, I think it's called, um, the author of that said, dedicated to God who forgives everybody. And the author of this book went, wait a minute, does he? Does God truly forgive everybody? And the answer is no, actually. Because think about it. If God truly forgives everybody, there would never be a single soul in hell ever. If anybody ever goes to hell, and the Bible clearly says they do, God has not forgiven them. Because forgiven means to restore the relationship. Why would God remove the penalty of somebody's sin, restore the relationship with them, and then send them to eternal suffering in hell? your forgiveness would stink at that point. That's not forgiveness. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. I want to look at some of these passages from Matthew because Matthew's already talked about it. He talks about the narrow and wide gates. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Are we going to sit here and say, oh, those people are all forgiven, and they're all going to their destiny of destruction? But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Matthew chapter 13, verses 41 to 43, as he explains the parable of the weeds, he says, The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin, and all who do evil, they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So there are some who do evil. There are some who do evil and are removed and punished, not forgiven. So the answer to the question of does God forgive everybody is actually no. And I know that's hard. We, we want a world where everything's just okay and everybody's going to the same place and we'll be happy forever and ever and there's never any penalty for sin. But that is not a just world. And if you've been severely abused by somebody, that picture is horrific. Because you want to know there's justice. 
that there are things that are right and things that are wrong and people are held accountable for them. And what we find in Scripture is we have a just and righteous God. So now let's ask ask the question, who does God forgive? And the answer is he forgives those who repent. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, at the very beginning of his public ministry, this is the first thing Jesus begins to preach. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. You see, we're not ready for forgiveness if we don't start with repentance. Repentance is admitting, I am wrong, I am a sinner, and I need to be saved. I've shared numerous times that I was a lifeguard. So much of our training as a lifeguard was how to save someone who didn't want to be saved. Those were the hardest people. They fought you the most. Our final exam was some football players were brought in and taught to drown. Not really drown. (laughs) Fake drown. That'd be horrible. Sign me up, coach. We had to go in and save them, and they were told to fight us. It was brutal. Because if they didn't want to be saved, it was so hard. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. We get to the early church in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter replies, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It starts with repentance, and then it goes to the gospel. That's what baptism is. It's the demonstration of the gospel. I have trusted in Jesus. I have died with him, been buried with him, raised to new life in him. That's what baptism is all about. So God forgives the sins of those who repent. And he takes that sin and he puts it on his son, Jesus Christ. And the penalty is paid in our place. And then we are restored to a right relationship with him. One final question. Kind of an objection. Does this mean there are no more consequences for sin? And you know, this really gets interesting because... We have situations in the world where church leaders have committed horrific sins and the church has forgiven them. And then nobody ever finds out about it and they're never brought to trial because they are forgiven. And I use the air quotes very deliberately, however annoying they may be, because it's not forgiveness. And forgiveness does not release us from all liability from our actions. Now, again, let's look at some passages because God does not hold our sin against us. Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions. That's forgiveness. Removes it. We will not pay for it any longer. The eternal price has been paid. It's been put on Jesus Christ. Hebrews 8, chapter 12, or chapter 8, verse 12, and I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. And some people say, see, God forgets our sins. That's not what that passage says. There is a huge difference between forgetting and choosing not to remember. And I know that may seem strange, but we serve an omniscient God who knows all things at all times. It is literally impossible for him to forget something. What remembrance is in Scripture is a calling to mind. God says, when I forgive you, 
I will never again call to mind your sin. I will not punish you for it. I will not hold you eternally accountable for it. It has been removed from you and put on his son, Jesus Christ. But, does that mean there's never any consequences? 2 Samuel chapter 11, King David has an illicit affair with Bathsheba, another man's wife. He gets her pregnant. David calls her son or her um, husband home from the war. Tries to cover it all over. Doesn't work. So he sends the husband back to the front and orders the commanders to make sure he is killed in battle. He murders him. He's had an adulterous relationship and then he murdered a man. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, the prophet Nathan comes and confronts David and points out his sin. And we see in verse 13 that David admits his sin and repents. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. That's forgiveness. God has forgiven you. However, Nathan also in the same passage says, but the child born from that relationship will die. And for the rest of your life, you're going to have war and strife in your household because of what you've done. And your son Absalom is going to rise up against you. And certainly for a time, David is kicked out of his own kingdom because of his own son Absalom. There were still consequences. So any concept of forgiving someone of their sin, but saying that means we can't necessarily press charges against them is wrong. There are earthly consequences. And for a church to cover over somebody's sin under the guise of forgiveness is wrong. We can forgive them, meaning you're not going to hell for what you did. And that's awesome. Like, that's bigger than anything else. But you might have to go to court. And I might have to sit there and say, they did this. And it was wrong. I have forgiven them. But they need to face the consequences. It's the whole concept of biblical discipline. God disciplines those he loves, right? And he does it to train us and to show us how important forgiveness, or rather how important holiness is. Now, before we can fully understand forgiveness, we must understand the foundation of forgiveness, which is love. Because so much misunderstanding about forgiveness comes from confusing it with love. Love is also a biblical command. And God loves everyone. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And in John, if you trace the word world, it is uniformly in the Gospel of John used for the sinful world in rebellion against God. This is not God just looking at, oh, the world is so sweet and wonderful. This is God looking at rebels and sinners who are his enemies and saying, I love you. I love you. And I love you so much, I'm going to send my son to die for you. God does love everyone, including his enemies. But that does not restore the relationship between God and those he loves. There are those that God loves who have never been restored to right relationship with him. Some of you have spent hours in prayers for those sort of people. 
God, bring them back. I love them. God loves even those he has not forgiven. Scripture says we are to also love everyone. Jesus says that the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul, or soul and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He goes on and he says you were even to love our enemies. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That does not make the persecution okay. It simply says I will not hold on to anger and bitterness toward that person. Love does not forgive and reconcile, but it does let go of the inner turmoil and the hatred and the anger towards someone, but never makes the thing they did okay. That's the difference. Love and forgiveness are different. We are to love all people, not hate them, not treat them poorly. Love is the foundation of forgiveness. And I believe when we talk about forgiving someone in our heart, well, I can't really make up with them, but I forgive them in my heart. I think we need to change the wording and say, I will love them as God has commanded me to love them. But I hope one day I can forgive them and be reconciled to them. But that requires repentance on their part. We are to love everyone, but we are to forgive those who repent and to be reconciled with them. Let's finish up with Peter's question here. Understand that Peter is talking about someone who has truly sinned against him. Peter is assuming that this person is willing to repent. Because if they don't repent, then we have to go to the other passage and talk about discipline. And Peter is struggling. And I think we can picture this. Some of you have had this in your own lives. You can picture what somebody has done. And you're thinking, if they were to repent, if they were to come and say, what I did was wrong, and I'm sorry, could I really forgive them? And the answer, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, is not easy, but it is a definite yes. We must forgive them. And we must restore the relationship with them. Now, That doesn't mean you forgive them and you just welcome them with open arms. If somebody's a child molester, you don't bring them right back into children's ministry. There may be consequences in that relationship. But you're not holding something against them. Things might have to change because you know what they struggle with. The parable that we'll look at next week now, in verses 23 to 27, talks about how extreme God's forgiveness is of us through Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is going to go to to explain to Peter why we must forgive. And I wanted to go deep into how God forgives us and what that looks like because we've got to be careful with our terminology. I think we mistakenly put a lot of guilt on some people. And a lot of hardship on people to say, you need to forgive that person even though they don't care about you and they continue to hurt you and they just don't care. You need to forgive. Or we look at the battered wife and say, you need to forgive and reconcile. No. Not only is that biblically wrong, that might be cruel. That person might need to be protected until such a time as that other person 
truly repents. And only then can there be reconciliation. But when we understand how much God has forgiven of us, it makes it much easier to truly forgive someone who has sinned against us, even multiple times. I encourage you during this week to read verses 23 to 27 of Matthew chapter 18. And I want you to think in this story, who are you? How has God forgiven you? And then we'll come back and we'll look at this important passage again next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, the concept of you forgiving us as sinners is so much bigger than we can possibly tackle. And then you base our understanding of forgiving others on that important truth. And so we have to wrestle with these things. We have to come to your word and allow you to shape our ideas and opinions. May we not settle with anything less than your absolute truth. And Father, I know I've said a lot of things today that people are going to struggle with and wrestle with. But I believe that the more accurate our definitions are to your word and how you explain things, the more joy we will have in living them out, the more freedom we will find in exercising these things, the better it will be for others to truly call them to repentance. And the more amazing it will be when somebody repents and gives their life to you and experiences the ultimate forgiveness. And so Peter, or Jesus, like Peter, we have questions. And I hope to try to answer some of those today. I pray that you help us to come back next week to answer the powerful question of just how much you have forgiven us of and what that should mean for how we forgive others. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.